Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. It's a little more than four years since Donald Trump announced he was running for president. It's a bit more than a week since he launched his bid for re-election. But many of the fights he's involved in are going to have effects that last much longer than electoral cycles. And we're going to talk about some of those today. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Helen Thompson is here and Gary Gerstel as well. Gary is a historian of the United States and he's written, among many other things, about the history of identity and race and citizenship. And we're going to get to that to kick this off. So in the rhythms of American political life, there are these electoral cycles. Famously, there's a two-year cycle for the House of Representatives. There's a four-year cycle for the White House. There's a six-year cycle now for the Senate. And there's a 10-year cycle, which is the census cycle. And that one is in the Constitution. It's mandated every 10 years. And there is a fight going on about the census now. It's not the first time by any means that the census and how it's conducted has become a huge political issue. We'll do some of the historical context, but I think we should start with the present. So Gary, in your mind, what's at stake now in what people are calling the citizenship question? Well, the Trump administration wants to put on the 2020 census a question about whether the person being asked about various things is a citizen of the United States. This would not be the first time that this has appeared on the census, but it would be the most comprehensive. And it's being done at a time when the lines between personhood and citizenship are being drawn and many more privileges being given to citizens than to immigrants. And immigrants are rightfully nervous about having this question on the census, thinking that this is being put there to scare them, because some of them will be in the country illegally, and many of those who are illegal are married to people who are legal, who with children born in the United States who are U.S. citizens. And so it has the possibility of exposing all these rifts within the immigrant communities. The sense among many people is that to put a question like this on the census during this fraught time is going to scare a lot of immigrants from registering themselves in the census, and that is going to depress their population. The census is used every 10 years after the count is made to redistrict. How many districts does every state get based on their population? Immigrants tend to be concentrated in states that are pro-immigration, pro-democratic party, There are estimates that as many as 6 million might avoid being counted. And if you think of these being concentrated in particular states, it can have very serious consequences for what have been uh, democratic strongholds. So this is the fight that's going on. It's gone to court and the Supreme Court was going to rule on it this week. But then there was an event a month or two ago, straight out of a Hollywood screenwriter's imagination where a Republican strategist named Poe Heller, who is a guru for redistricting and figuring out how to enhance Republican power and depress Democratic power. He died. His estranged daughter, who had not talked to him in years, returned to his home to rummage through his stuff to see what of hers would be in there. And in that pile, she found five hard disks with all his data and correspondence relating to redistricting. And he says in that very plainly, 
that this is being done to suppress a Democratic vote and to enhance the possibility of Republican victory. Because the public facing story before that was this was being done to shore up the Voting Rights Act, right? This was, if there was a rationale for this that was being used to justify it, it was actually to defend the rights of voters, that is, to make sure the electoral roll was correct, isn't that? That is is correct. And the Voting Rights Act was meant to protect first the rights of African Americans and secondarily that of other racial minorities. So the Republicans actually did put this forward as upholding the rule of law. But it turned out from these disks that something else was going on. This then got the case reopened in court. The Supreme Court was going to rule on it this week. But because it's been reopened in a lower court, they can't act until the ruling comes down, which is likely going to push it beyond the end of the Supreme Court term into the summer, which means it will be too late to put on the census. Now, there are two arguments about not putting it on the census. One is completely procedural. Anytime the census puts a new question on, it is heavily tested and tried out in particular districts to anticipate and then uncover all kinds of unintended consequences. Uh, So one of the arguments is when this was first proposed in December 2018, the argument was it was too late. And the other argument is that this is a device to suppress Democratic voting totals. The U.S. is in the process of becoming a majority minority nation, meaning a majority of people will be composed of racial minorities, people who are defined as racial minorities in the United States. This is one of the Republican Party's nightmares. They know the demography is against them. So in order for them to remain players, they have to think of ways to continue to be able to win electoral contests. And suppressing the votes of very many Americans is one way that they do that. And they have done that on multiple occasions in multiple ways. What's really interesting about what's going on, it brings so many different questions that have been fraught in American politics for decades, really, all into this decision that the Supreme Court in the end is is going to have to make. Because as I understand it, the lower courts have already actually said that the administration doesn't have the authority, though for the reasons that you said, it, it's not really just a question of authority because the questions of the motivation of what the administration doing is coming into this. So that's a complicated Supreme Court issue in itself is because usually the Supreme Court rules on matters of authority and this time it's got to deal with the motivation as to what the administration wanted to do by doing this. Then it's got the whole question of citizenship and the fact that the United States has many people living in the United States who aren't citizens and that this has become a very contested political question. I mean, after all, I think it's pretty plausible to argue that Trump wouldn't have won the Republican nomination, not winning the presidency itself, which I think is more to do with Hillary Clinton's weaknesses, but that he wouldn't have won the nomination for the Republican Party without this issue around illegal immigration. Um, That was the thing that allowed him to get going. That was the thing that, in some sense, Republican establishment miscalculated in terms of Republican primary voters after the 2012 election, because essentially they thought then, to go back to the political dilemma for the Republicans that Gary set out, that the way forward for the Republican Party was to try to become more Hispanic-friendly. And uh, that is the the line that Jeb Bush, who was supposed to be the front-runner for the Republican nomination, took. And not only Trump, but Ted Cruz basically mobilised the backlash from Republican primary voters against that. And then you've just got the basic fact that the United States has become ever more politically polarised. And once it becomes as polarised as it, as it is, adding that into a politics in which the Supreme Court has become ever more important in making decisions. So there's scarcely anything now 
that is politically contested that doesn't end up at the Supreme Court, at least in domestic politics, and all this is coming together in this decision. And then I want to add one more thing, which is very now. So in the history of the census question, there's always been this fear, what will the government use this information for? This information is going to be retained over a 10-year cycle. Now, those kinds of questions have a salience now that goes beyond, I think, their traditional anxiety because of the relationship between data, data collection, big data, the role of the big technology companies, and what we're going to increasingly move into a world where government services depend on it, as it were, how the data about you is collected. So you said that the question hasn't been there for a while. I think I'm right, it was 1950 was the last time. Mm -hmm. And there have been times in the past. So for instance, the information that was collected about Japanese Americans was, I think, thought to have been used in the 1940s by Roosevelt in order to intern them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a big... You know, so you, you fill in the census, two, three years later, you're interned. But the fears now go beyond that, I think, because no one knows what happens to this kind of information when it resides with government. So, yes, you don't want to reveal that you're here and you're not a citizen partly because you do not know what will happen to that information. And two, three years later, you're interned, or whatever it is. Well, it's absolutely true. Trump has created a climate of fear in American society. And so people are reluctant to identify for who they are because they are worried that they will no longer be protected by the law. And they see this as one more mechanism for arousing fear. That is very much a part, and Helen, what you said about Trump running on the illegal immigrant issue that was arguably the most important issue he had other than hate Hillary. This is something that feeds the base. So in some senses, the the end product is irrelevant to Trump as long as he can stimulate the base and get them ready for a re-election fight. And yes, we do live in an age where there's much greater insecurity about one's personhood. On the other side, one should also say that the census has always been changing. All that these, uh, was called for in the Constitution was a counting of people. And over the 100 years, they began to count manufacturers, cows, income, taxation, ethnicity. One thing they never counted is religion, interestingly enough, race. Things have expanded, contracted in terms of what's been asked uh, on the census. And I think over the long history, there's been a healthy discourse and discussion about what the government should be asking its citizenry. So it should be pointed out that the census has been a mechanism for enhancing democracy, the discussions that have surrounded it, rather than suppressing it. And that's something that can sometimes be lost in this current moment. But there's no doubt that there are a lot of people in America living in great fear. And of course, what's happening to the asylum seekers in the Southwest, uh, the conditions under which they're being housed, and also Trump's recent threat now postponed for two weeks to raid populations and communities that have undocumented immigrants in them and to deport them summarily, talking about as many as 10,000 people. This has been broadcast. And so to put a citizenship question into this climate is meant to further enlarge fear and anxiety and define much more deeply the line between we and them, an internal border within American society. There's a really interesting history to this, is, is if you go back to the question of like, why was the census in the Constitution? Because there's, I'm not sure whether there's any, is there any other country in the world that puts having a census in its Constitution? 
Well, the US was the first. It's not common, let's at least put it that. And the reason, as I understand it, was is because they you know, come out of the British system. And in the British system, you had these old rotten boroughs where you, I think it was Old Sorum, wasn't it? We had about five residents and still had a borough, whereas a city like Manchester, expanded population had no representation until 1832. So you do, in democratic politics, have to count people. But then you have to decide, in some sense, who the citizens are who are then going to have a vote and who the people are who are living in a country and who the citizens are who have a vote. We're not the same thing in the United States, not least because of the slavery question. So if you have a politics in which the people who are citizens and the people who are persons are roughly the same, which I think is fairly reasonably true in concept, at least, of the first half of 20th century America, though in practice, obviously, African-Americans were systematically discriminated um, against, then it's not so vexed question. But once you have the position the United States has now got itself into, whereby you have many people who are living there, some of them for a very long time, without being citizens, who are married, as you say, to citizens, then this whole counting for the purposes of elections as opposed to just having a census, becomes a deeply difficult question, I think. And as you said, Gary, there, there are two sides to this. So there's a kind of democratic mobilisation side to it, as well as a suppression side. After all, every 10 years also, in theory, large numbers of people finally count. You know, they get their chance to be counted. So what happened, in, for instance, in 2010, or earlier periods, there must be periods where large numbers of citizens in this 10-year cycle they get onto the register, they, they start to count, and this is an opportunity to mobilise, presumably. There is a way from the citizen's point of view that the census is your emancipation moment, not your disappearance moment. Yes, you are being counted. It should be said in the Constitution, the census is not connected to citizenship, it, yeah. it's entirely connected to personhood. Persons. It's not a constitutional mandate to count citizens. But yes, it can be a very important moment to be counted, and to be counted is then to get the notice of political parties who realize they have a constituency in you, and even if you are excluded, discriminated against, harshly treated, you do have an opportunity in American society to mobilize democratically. And almost literally, you create a constituency. You might create a new district yes. because you suddenly count. Yes, and in the 1920s, a similar period to now, a tremendous antagonism toward immigrants, and then it was against Eastern and Southern Europeans, Greeks, Poles, Eastern European Jews, Ukrainians, people from other parts of the Balkans, Italians tremendous discriminatory legislation directed toward them. They feel under severe threat. The census at this point is not asking everyone if they're a citizen, but they are asking all immigrants or anyone born abroad whether they have become a citizen. And in the process of this counting, a lot of immigrants who are not citizens decide to become citizens. And there's an extraordinary increase in the rate of naturalization just in the 1920s, where one Eastern and Southern European community after another actually doubles or triples the percentages of citizens in their districts who are now eligible to vote. This is an extraordinary political development, and this becomes, it's invisible for a lot of the 20s, but it becomes an invisible foundation on which Franklin Roosevelt in the 1930s is going to build his New Deal coalition. So these are literally constituencies being called into being and part of what's calling them into being is counting them, getting the Democratic Party to notice them, and then beginning a process of mobilizing them and unleashing a force in politics that has the capacity to reverse the repressive legislation to which they have been subjected. So could something similar to that not have happened in 2010? 
I mean, could we not expect... In 2010, there is change, because, but it's actually to the Republicans' advantage because the two states that lose some members of the House is New York and Ohio, and the two states that gain them are Texas and Florida. Because it isn't... The other thing that's going on, obviously, is internal population shifts within the United States itself. But as a mobilisation of relatively new immigrants to the yes. United States when there wasn't a citizenship question, so people were just counted or counting themselves, could you have expected a similar... It doesn't seem to have happened. I wouldn't have expected it in 2010 because 2000, the off-year elections, the non-presidential years of election, are usually not the big moments of mobilization and awakening. Sorry, I mean as a consequence of the last census. What happened in 2010, this was the Tea Party moment. This was the height of anti-Obama sentiment and hysteria. And the most important event of 2010 was not what happened in Congress, where Obama lost his majorities, but what happened in the states? A thousand Democratic state office holders got wiped out. One thousand, all replaced by Republicans. And so, in a majority of state houses, the Republicans either had two or three branches of government, and that puts them in the driver's seat for redistricting. This is a deeply politicized process called gerrymandering. You arrange districts to advantage your party, and the Republicans were absolutely ruthless in designing districts to confine Democrats into smaller and smaller numbers of districts and to enlarge numbers of Republican districts where Republicans could dominate. This has had an enormous impact on politics in America since that time, almost a kind of invisible. And just to be clear, so the way it works is the census gives you the numbers, but what you do with those numbers is a decision for the states. That's a- and actually, the numbers don't really tell you what to do with them. You can decide. You can do all kinds of things with them. But they do tell you the how Census Bureau determine- will begin to reallocate on the basis of population representatives allotted to each. And then the states will draw the boundaries and of then the, the constituency. States draw the boundaries. Okay, well that's where the power is. So there's an enormous <laughs> the boundary enormous drawing. power there and of course in this this era of mass data the ability to refine your calculations and how to draw your lines has become unbelievably sophisticated. So this is a hidden war going on all the time. So you go down this street, then you turn left, you turn right, you live, leave that house out because you know who lives there. Yes. And so what, what matters in 2020 is not just whether Trump is reelected or not, but whether the Democrats can get enough office holders back in the states so as to be in charge of redistricting. It's after a, this census. After the, the 2020 census. It's an absolutely crucial, crucial moment. So that did happen in 2010, and the Republicans got an enormous advantage. What didn't happen in 2016, and I wrote that it would happen, and I was wrong, is I was expecting the Latino population in the United States to repeat what Eastern and Southern Europeans had done in the 1920s, because they had been subjected. uh, Trump had called them the vilest names and wanted to punish them in the most severe way, calling them rapists and inferior people, and it's just unbelievable. We, We know all that, and I thought that would catalyze a process through which Latino immigrants would begin to naturalize in much greater numbers and that they would deploy their force in politics and carry the Democratic Party to victory. A completely logical, plausible scenario. And as is often the case, the present doesn't repeat the past. And and just is it partly because it's harder to naturalize than it was in the 20s? No, I don't think that. Uh, It wasn't that easy to naturalize in in the 20s either. It's a puzzle, which I'm trying to figure out. And it has something to do with the nature of the Latino population, which doesn't form a cohesive ethnic group, the way in which other groups form cohesive groups. If you're talking about Italians, Eastern European Jews, Greeks, they all came within a relatively short period of time. They 
in the early 20th century, they had great commonality with each other. Mexicans have been migrating for 150 years. Some of them didn't even migrate. They had half of their country taken from Mexico and incorporated into the United States in the 1840s. And so they didn't move at all. The border moved on them. And so, and you have plenty of these kind of old immigrants in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. And then you got the Cubans in Florida who are sui generis because most of them are anti-communist refugees and their descendants from Castro's Cuba. There's so much variety among the Latino population. I think we actually do ourselves harm as political analysts to think of them as one group. And so the idea that they will rise up as one group is a mistaken perception. So Trump actually got his vote of the Latinos was, I think, in the 20s, far above what Romney had done. Nowhere near what George W. Bush had done in 2004, which was to win over 40% of the Latino vote. But there are elements of the Latino community that don't feel a sense of loyalty, kinship with the people coming over the border now. And that's especially true of Mexican-American attitudes toward those from Central America. Mexico itself is extremely harsh on the Central Americans. There is very little kinship there. And so to speak about these people as a single group that's got to rise up together at a single moment. And elect Hillary Clinton as and president. And elect Hillary Clinton, I think. But that's the other thing, isn't it, though, is, is that if you go back to Roosevelt, he was trying to construct a very broad coalition. And his campaign, or the way that he constructed that coalition, was quite sensitive to the religious identities of these immigrant groups. Hillary Clinton was trying to basically take Obama's coalition, which was narrow but deep, and didn't have such obvious places for certainly the more socially conservative Hispanic voters. In fact, you might say that they were discouraged out of it by some of the rhetoric. I think that may well be true, but I think the misapprehension on the part of Hillary and her advisors and the Democratic Party generally is that they have accepted a category that has been invented for the census as being politically real. And sometimes categories that are invented do become organic and do begin to describe the reality on the ground. But Hillary Clinton did better with Hispanic voters in the 2008 primaries than Obama did because she had a broader message when she was running against Obama in 2008 than she ended up with as a candidate in 2016, partly because she essentially tried to take over Obama's 2008 strategy and it didn't work for her and she would have been better off going back to her own 2008 strategy. Right, and it's, it's also true that there are culturally conservative strains within parts of the Latino population in the United States, religious, God-fearing, uh, family-oriented, and they see themselves as being under siege in the way in, in which other religiously devout Christians in America sometimes see themselves as being under siege. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. If our theme here is the fights that are going to outlast electoral cycles, 
this one, like all of these kinds of fights, potentially reaches the Supreme Court. And the great fear with the first Trump term was that he would create a court that would allow him to win these fights. So when he's long gone, the legacy lives on. So we don't know what will happen when the census, if when the census question reaches this court, but there's a thought that the court is now 5-4 conservative. As I understand it, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh have pretty different profiles now on the court, and Gorsuch is much more flexible. <laughs> I mean, he has sided with the liberal judges on a number of questions, particularly rights-based questions. Kavanaugh seems much more the person that many of the people who voted for Trump hoped they would get. Of course, there's also the question of what happens in the next term if it's going to be a huge issue in the presidential campaign that they may be fighting for Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement. But what's your sense of the court now? Because there are other big questions coming up. Like you say, this this cuts across the issue of what's actually happening on the border. Big legal fights going on at the moment about what the Trump administration is doing. Again, which turn on intent. Can it be shown that this cruel strategy is deliberately cruel, that the treatment of children is not just because it's underfunded and under-resourced and government is useless at this kind of thing, and it was almost as bad under Obama, but this is a deliberate strategy, that cruelty is being used as policy. That question reaches the courts and eventually reaches the Supreme Court in some form. But what's your sense of how this court is now shaping up? Is it actually going to be the court that entrenches Trump's legacy for a generation? Well, it may well be. And there are other issues that are at play. One is executive power, and the other is what we might call the regulatory state and its destruction. And I would say I worry most about the last two issues. For the, the legacy that the long legacy, outlasts uh, electoral. The evisceration of the regulatory state, which means... Uh, stripping the government of the ability to regulate private industry and private contracts, populating agencies meant to regulate the private economy with people who want to take it down. The Koch brothers who are arch libertarians and hate every manifestation of central government, or so they say, are not natural allies of Trump. But there is a quiet alliance between them about judges to appoint to undo the deep regulatory state. It's facilitated by Mike Pence, who is very close to the Koch brothers, and they are systematically replacing judges at the federal level with these people who are then going to rise through the ranks and will be natural candidates for uh, the Supreme Court. So I worry about that. I worry tremendously about executive power. And on other matters, I think the court has been somewhat reticent. They've been reticent on abortion at the Supreme Court. In other words, they turned down a case which they could have taken. They also turned down a case on revolving around gay rights that they could have taken. There is a sense in which I think this court is being a little careful now through the election season, and I don't think we will know its full character until the election is decided. If Trump is reelected, he will get, I think, two appointments, because I don't see either Ginsburg or Breyer, both liberal justices, making it through another four years, and that will secure his legacy. And this is something he is delivering on. He has promised that he will only appoint judges to the Supreme Court who are on the list of the Federalist Society, which carries an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, which means a very narrow interpretation of what the central government can do to regulate economic life and other aspects of life. He will remain true to that strategy. The wild card in this is that we don't always know what justices do when they get on the Supreme Court. And the difference, as you suggested, between Gorsuch and Kavanaugh that has emerged is quite interesting. I see Kavanaugh as a servant of power, and I see Gorsuch as having a real jurisprudence, which allows him in some occasions 
to act against centers of power. And we don't know fully how that's going to play itself out, but certainly some of the differences between them have been interesting. Yeah, I think that there clearly are differences between them. And I think even if you just take the two justices and show that supposedly that they're part of a single agenda that Trump is trying to achieve through the court, that kind of argument is difficult to sustain when you have two appointments and they go in really quite significant different directions already. And it- Trump hasn't yet said he, Gorsuch has let him down, has he? No. no. Is it because it hasn't registered? Because you'd think at a certain but, point, I mean, given what he says about the chief of the Federal Reserve, at some point, surely he's going to tweet that this guy's betrayed him. I don't know about that, because I think that the thing that Gorsuch is doing, as I understand it anyway, that um, Kavanaugh isn't, is trying to enunciate some constitutional principles to the decisions that he's making. So Kavanaugh looks more like, not that he's going with the flow, that's an <laughs> inaccurate way of describing it. But he's not trying to set out a set of principles by which then more conservative justices might consider themselves bound in the in the future. Because the less that you set out constitutional principles, the more that you can make sort of ad hoc decisions. Whereas, as I understand it, what Gorsuch's trying to do is, is to say, no, there are certain things that have gone wrong with our constitutional system, including in one of the judgments that he's made saying that Congress isn't playing its proper role as a legislator because it's not actually delivering or passing clear laws he says in one of his judgments where the law's vague there's no law at all and so he wanted to say that congress has to be clear about the things that it's legislating and that it does have some if you like small c conservative intent to that um, but it has also meant in in a couple of cases he sided five four with the liberal justices on that basis the law's not clear there is no law so i'm going with the liberals it is, but I think that for him, the crucial point is not whether it's conservative or liberal. It's trying to get back to a constitutional system in which the legislature passes laws, the executive executes laws, and the, the judges uphold the, the constitution. And that's beyond anybody's partisan political legacy, I think. So this is going to be too sweeping, but as you describe it, the court's been wary of some questions that you might call social, cultural, or moral, abortion, gay rights. Kavanaugh what he is, is is for the, as you say, the stripping of the regulatory state. So I heard a podcast with Elizabeth Colbert, the New Yorker writer about environmental issues, in which she said when she was asked about the future of humanity, never mind, longer lasting effects than the electoral cycle, she said the biggest event of recent years was Kavanaugh's appointment to the court, because while he is there with the current setup of the court, it's going to be very, very hard for environmental regulation to stick. And we don't have long so you know, five, ten years of a, of a court where... So Kavanaugh may indeed be less influential on some other questions, but this is his thing. And the environmental regulatory state with Kavanaugh on the court can be dismantled now. And that's the legacy of Trump's presidency. And that fight over Kavanaugh's appointment, that was the fight. I mean, she was almost blank. That was the fight for all of us. It was quite sobering. Well, to make it even more sober... I think this is an issue on which Gorsuch uh, and Kavanaugh see eye to eye. Exactly, that was my... I don't think they're going to split on, on, on this. So Gorsuch has principles, the law must be clearly written. But if it is clearly written, it has to abide by certain constitutional principles. And they both feel as though this part of the Constitution, which people outside the U.S. and American history have trouble comprehending because it doesn't seem it should rule so much, this thing called the Commerce Clause that gives the government the right to, to regulate interstate commerce. This has become a general governmental power, which the federal government otherwise doesn't have. And so much of the regulatory state 
is based on the right of the federal government to regulate interstate commerce. And some people are saying, well, what does interstate commerce have to do with regulating the environment? Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are both saying this clause has been vastly overstretched, and we're going to begin rolling back the regulatory state on that basis. And part of the regulatory state is, of course, the environmental state. Now, we do have climate catastrophe on our side. I mean, it's got to get worse and worse year by year. And so there may well be changes in this over the next two, three, four, or or five years. Um, Plus, if they are rolling back the federal regulatory state, the states themselves are therefore freer, potentially, California and others to take more radical action. Yes, and states will may once again have to become what Brandeis called laboratories of democracy or what we might call the vanguard of democracy. It's hard for an American historian to get their head around this because for so long the states were seen as the bastion of Jim Crow discriminatory legislation against blacks and racial equality. But you're absolutely right. If this goes through at the federal level, then the states are going to be absolutely crucial. And because of the size of California and its economy and its ranking, if you treat it as an independent nation, um, how high it ranks in the world, what California does, the rest of the country has to, in some ways, pay attention to. I think, though, the court reacts to cases and makes decisions about which cases it's going to take. And the cases end up in the lower courts because of legislation. So I think it's, it's more plausible to think of the Supreme Court acting as a constraint on what a democratic president and a democratic congress might be trying to do on the environment than to think that in the present that the regulatory state is going to be stripped back because if you go back if you go back to the green new deal analogy obviously the new deal the original new deal ran into the constraint of the supreme court and i don't think it's difficult to imagine that the green new deal if it ever comes about would run into the constraint of the the supreme court but the supreme court can't by itself now, start dismantling the regulatory state. That was going to be precisely my question, because we talked about the New Deal in the past, but it just looks like that could be the fault line. If Trump loses, all of them, I mean, even Biden now, is talking a language which would collide directly with what this court seems to think about the possibility of federal regulation of the environment. I mean, if Trump wins and we go down that route, that's one thing. But almost any Democrat now, it's, it's a collision course, isn't it? A collision course. And then, of course, if a Democrat wins, he or she will have an opportunity to, to, to appoint yeah. two justices. I mean, this is the thing. Which will, yeah. which will matter a great deal. And historically, progressives in America have fought against the court. And from the 1890s to the 1940s, if you were a progressive in American society, you were saying the court is holding us back, precisely as you have described, that they won't allow the regulatory state of the central government to emerge. And what may have to emerge if Trump wins and gets two more appointments is the return of a constitutional politics of the sort that we haven't seen in America. And what I mean by that is you don't take a stand on this or that justice, but you declare the institution of the Supreme Court itself to be an illegitimate institution in American democracy. And both Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt were fierce critics of the court as an institution, not just this or that justice. But the very legitimacy of a group of nine men constantly overruling Democratic majorities was seen by them to be deeply illegitimate. And they were outspoken about this. They were caustic in their criticism. Franklin Roosevelt actually tried to pack the court in 1937. And he said, for the caseload is clearly too large for these old men. And for every man 70 years or older, I'm going to appoint another justice to help them with their workload. And this was a transparent attempt. He lost that particular 
case, but it so scared one of the justices, he switched his vote, and that begins the conversion of the Supreme Court into a progressive force in American life. So if the worst case scenario emerges, the U.S. has a tradition it can draw on of rendering the court itself and its legitimacy an issue to talk about in American but life. But I think that it already is. I mean, that seems to me part of the tragedy of American politics that it's got to this point is that each time the court looks like it's moved in the direction that is entrenches the political position of one of the parties or one side of the political divide, the other side thinks that the court's illegitimate. I mean, many Republican voters and many Republican politicians have thought the court's basically been doing illegitimate things since about the school prayer decision in 1962. And now it's going back the the other way. And the question I think for American politics then is, is well, can it continue in which it has a uh, an institution that supposedly about the constitution and about the thing that people are supposed to accept as the rules of the game and the thing that the polity has that holds it together that actually there is no common consensus about at all it requires a politics it simply isn't there i've long felt that it's a burden for a country to have the oldest written constitution in the world that can't be changed and that's essentially a description of the u.s constitution and there's only one period in american history where there was a successful politics of changing the Constitution via constitutional amendment. And I think if the U.S. is to come out of this crisis, I have to hope for, although I don't know how to design this political process, I have to hope for a situation where in some respects the Constitution will be changed via the amendment route to give the the U.S. a more adequate governing structure. And the first thing I would do if I had the power to do it and if I was on the Supreme Court was not in Congress to pass a constitutional amendment would be to eliminate the Electoral College and make the winner in American politics genuinely the winner of a majority of votes. Because part of the challenge now is the thing that you described, which is challenge the legitimacy of the court because it is blocking the will of the people. So in our political discourse, that is now called populism, right? And yet reforming the American political system by reforming the Constitution through a series of presumably deliberative and other processes is the opposite in some ways of populism. Yet in our politics, what people hear is the populism. That's the big political challenge. To make a case against the legitimacy of the court in the name of the Constitution that doesn't come across as more of this eroding of the norm. Absolutely, I agree with that entirely. And the difficulty in America is to change the Constitution via amendment is such a difficult and well-nigh impossible and no populist is going to win election on that platform. I think the other th- the other thing, though, is is it makes it more difficult for the United States than it is for Britain, which I would argue has also got to face up to its constitutional questions, is that the United States is a federal state. If you are going to change that and taking the electoral college out of things does change something in that fundamental nature of what the American polity is, which it is federal and it's not a unitary state. That has got to be something about which there is some kind of consensus as well. And it's incredibly difficult to see how you're going to have a consensus for ending the United States as a federal state. It also means asking the states to vote themselves a diminution of their power because the Electoral College lodges extraordinary power in small states. And in order for an amendment to pass, I don't know how many listeners will know this, You need two-thirds of both houses of Congress to pass the amendment, and then you need three-quarters of state legislatures. So uh, that's not happening. I think Uh, we're now in the third longest period without a constitutional amendment. Yes, yes. And if you count the number of amendments that have been passed that were not a period of the founding, the Civil War, or the silliness of prohibition, which counts for two, you're down to eight over 230 years, which underscores 
the difficulty of the process. There is one moment in American history, 1900, 1920, when four amendments are passed. And there's something that's also a puzzle to figure out. How do we reproduce that moment? Because that was about criticizing the court, exactly as you say, but respecting the rule of law and changing the Constitution. And that was the transition from populism to progressivism. One of those I mean, that's one, what defined it. But yes. one of those ones was also one of the ones that was then prohibition that was then repealed. Yes, but yes, th- there was a silly one among the four. But one out of four is not bad. And uh, But the point is it still passed. In other words, there was a politics that figured out how to amend the Constitution. And it's a singular moment in American history, the only one of that sort that the America has not been able to reproduce any time, any place. Last thing, we haven't really talked about this, and Gary, we've sort of circled around it in our conversations with you on this podcast a while, which is the impeachment question, because the impeachment question is also a question of electoral politics and relates to the timing of elections and electoral cycles and the kind of Ocasio-Cortez versus Pelosi difference on this is, is a tactical difference in many ways. But there's also a fundamental question that many people have aired, which is kind of, if we don't do it now, what are we saying for the future about the circumstances in which you might impeach? There are norms and principles at stake. I don't think we've spoken to you since the Mueller report actually was published in its redacted form. Uh, I've read it. Have you read it? I've read it. It's an interesting document. It's a very interesting document. Um, it lays the grounds for impeachment, right? It absolutely clearly, and then says it's not our job to decide what you do with this information, but the, it's set up in such a way that it clearly is there. Just that basic question, so leaving aside the kind of political calculus here, but if, with that in the public domain, the decision is taken, we can't impeach, what long-term consequences do you think that has? Are people right to say that there is a principle at stake here, that if you don't do it, you are signalling, basically, you're never going to do it? I think that's right. I myself am torn on the issue because I understand the political calculation that Nancy Pelosi makes, thinking that this could backfire for the 2020 election. And she has the Clinton experience in mind, the Clinton impeachment, where as soon as the impeachment proceedings against him began, which were successful, his popularity soared. But I think that's a misreading of the Clinton event. You could argue that impeachment denied the Clinton succession. Al Gore, his vice president, who was running for president in 2000, would not campaign with him would not be associated with him, did not want to get too close to his policies. And one could argue that that was, in a sense, decisive in costing him the election. Of course, he won the election if the votes had been counted fair and square, but Florida would never have been in play if he had drawn closer to Clinton. And you could say his distance from Clinton was a product of that impeachment. And so in that respect, the Republican intervention in that regard was very successful. And I think that's how it should be read. But I think there is a matter of of principle here. It is such a damning report, especially in terms of obstruction of justice. Uh, Mueller and his team clearly would have indicted this man were he not president of the United States. They more or less say that in the summary, don't they? Yes. Uh, And And they they say say when he's not, he would be indicted. And they say twice, they use the same language. The fact that we're not indicting him does not mean that we're exonerating him. <clears throat> they say that twice for emphasis. Now, I think Mueller made a strategic mistake. I think um, he's a superb civil servant. I think he's not his, his political instincts are not that good. I think he miscalculated. He thought either Congress would take this up with alacrity or William Barr, the attorney general, who was once a good friend of his, would see what he was doing in the report and take action of his own. 
So I think he was surprised by what Barr did, and I think he was surprised by Congress's inability thus far to really get up ahead of steam about it. One thing for historians to pour over is the internal debates within the Mueller team about how to present this report and what to do. And I'm sure there were dissenting, very strong dissenting voices, which we will want to recover. His mistake was to not take a stand and to use double negatives in terms of the expressing their uh, con- their conviction that this man had committed crimes. And that permitted Barr and groups in the Republican Party to spin the report uh, another way. A lot of the American public has now lost interest in it and thinks to bring it back now is just to play politics one more time. But a very significant event happened this morning uh, with Mueller agreeing to testify before Congress in July. And that those are going to be a very significant two days. I think if impeachment proceedings are to take off, it has to happen in the next month. It has to happen before the primary season happens in earnest. Uh, so the Democrats have a couple months to do this. And I do think, regardless of the political risk, this is a matter of political principle that one has to take a stand for the reason you suggested. If you don't impeach... If not now, if when? If not now, then this impeachment clause in the Constitution is rendered null and void forever. The Democratic Party debates for the many candidates, they have to happen on two nights start this week. And so we'll be coming back to that question, who might run against Trump very soon. We recorded a guide to the US Constitution with Gary last year, and we'll put that out. We've done one for this year, which will come out over the summer with Sarah Churchwell about the Gilded Age, talking about populism and progressivism. We also done one for the British Constitution. So we've covered all our bases. Next week, we're going to be talking about something different. Libra, Facebook's new currency for the world. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Anyway. Good tale. Well, there are are no interesting facts about me. Oh, come on. Say something. Make one up then. I love the new, is is it on? Yes. I love the New Jersey Turnpike from Elizabeth to New York. This extraordinary (laughs) industrial landscape. Oh, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Uh, And Tony Soprano. You're Bruce Springsteen and Tony Soprano. I love the new Bruce Springsteen album. So do I. It's brilliant. It's so good. And I'm a huge Springsteen fan, but that's too common to be interesting. But it's so great. I have not listened to the new one yet. Oh, it's so great. Yeah, it's so good, yeah. It's brilliant. I've had it. I've listened. I've been to I only got it last week and I've had it on about 10, 15 times. The reason I was annoyed about losing my phone is this morning I couldn't listen to it. I've made a pilgrimage to Freehold. And you you understand why he wanted to. He was so desperate to get out. Yeah. Because he now says I was born to run and I now live 10 miles from where I was Yeah, born. I mean, it's, it's, he never had a car or He a never license. got out, though, in some deep sense, did he? Because it's, it's just it's completely, completely inside him. Uh, I think he did get out, actually. But he yeah. gets out. I think he's, for, he's out for, and in. He's out and in. For a star of his magnitude and scale, he's r- rather healthy, actually, given what he has to contend with. Yeah, no, I didn't mean it like that. I mean, he's never left it behind. It's all yeah, still... It's okay. all in the songs. And he's been in therapy for years, and mm. his autobiography reads like tales from my psychoanalyst. Exactly. All, that stuff about <laughs> being, all that stuff about being unsafe as a child, and yeah. I never, like, yeah. yeah. What yeah. did that actually involve? Yeah. Was he, what was, and the, what a what great, was the threat? What a great lyricist. And I, I do have a pantheon of New Jersey heroes, and he's, yeah. he's in there. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.